HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Pico Oysters, turning water into brine on Long Island's North Fork. This week on Meet and Three, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture, luxury ice and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sting upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. The 2018 Farm Bill, which of course is the primary legislation passed by Congress that sets national nutrition, agriculture, and conservation policy, finally passed at the end of December, um, about three months after it had expired, with little fanfare. Given the extreme importance of this legislation, I thought it was high time to circle back to it and discuss where we landed with several of the big programs. Today, we're going to focus on the conservation efforts in the bill, which is particularly timely with the recent release of several alarming reports about climate change. Joining the show to take us through everything is Alyssa Charney, Senior Policy Specialist at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, or NSNAC, where she leads their work on federal agricultural conservation policy. Alyssa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, all right, let's just let's dive right in. So can you um, just tell our listeners what what the you know, what is NSAC and what's your role there? Sure. Um, so NSAC is an alliance of grassroots organizations all around the country. We have nearly 130 member groups or organizations, and we work with those members to advance the sustainability of agriculture, food systems, natural resources, and rural communities. Um, our member groups are the folks on the ground. They are working directly with farmers, ranchers, stakeholders, community members who are impacted by federal agriculture and farm policy. Um, so they take that feedback that they're getting from what's happening on the ground. 
they work with us at NSAC to set our priorities in terms of what are we going to work on when it comes to food and agriculture policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then NSAC, our team in D.C., worked on behalf of our member organizations advocating directly to, to Congress and USDA uh, here in D.C. All right. Awesome. Wow. So really important, really important stuff. Um, what is the, okay. So I want to talk about climate change before we, you know, dig in. Um, I mean, well, we're going to talk about it through the entire episode. I don't know why I said that. um, All right. So what is the role of like the food industry more broadly in addressing climate change? Like how important and to what degree should it be a focus in working to reduce our collective environmental footprint? Sure. Yeah, so food and agriculture is is absolutely central to our collective efforts to address climate change. Um, We know that that agriculture, as well as all parts of the um, food system, do contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, We also know that there is enormous potential to ensure that those agricultural systems and food systems um, are really working in a way that actually reduces greenhouse gas emissions um, through reduced emissions, through soil soil carbon sequestration. Um, So, you know, not only is there this relevant opportunity and and need to mitigate climate change because of the contributions of the broader food system, Mm -hmm. um, we also know that the the impacts of climate change are very real for agriculture, for farmers, for food systems. Um, Farmers and ranchers are at the front lines when it comes to those effects. They are facing floods, droughts, extreme temperatures, um, changing pest and disease pressures. So their, their livelihoods and survival are, are literally at, at stake as a result of the impacts of a changing climate. Um, so they are very much at the front lines, not only because they, they have this opportunity to, to mitigate the impacts of climate change, um, but the, they also really do need to be able to adapt because right. those those pressures are, are very real all across the country. Yeah, and we won't be able to have any food. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So the, the food that is available to us um, is, is absolutely dependent on, on these um, opportunity and need for farmers and food systems to be able to survive. You know, we, we know that availability and affordability is, is being impacted in terms of climate change and shifting temperatures and pressures. So mm-hmm. the, the impact is, is very real, as is the, the contribution of agriculture and food systems as a whole. Um, all right. So when we when they think about the farm bill, how important is a specific piece of legislation to the country's overall conservation efforts? Yeah. Um, so the farm bill is, is, you know, absolutely the primary source of federal investment when it comes to giving farmers and ranchers the tools that they need to implement conservation on on their land in a way that um, both protects natural resources, but also improves and advances their sustainability. Um, The 2018 Farm Bill, that one that was just signed into law, it's projected to invest nearly $60 billion over the course of the next 10 years in these types of conservation efforts. Um, Was it 50 or 60? Sorry, I couldn't hear. 60, okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so while that's still, you know, a, a small piece of the overall pie, it's about 7% of total funding, this really is the bulk of the funding that is available um, through the federal government to support farmers who are taking on conservation in a way that is going to improve our soil, protect water quality, protect and improve air quality. Like, th- this is their toolbox when right. it comes to these 
what needs to be done. So it provides funding and it provides, um, and we'll talk about this more in more detail, but like broadly mm-hmm. like tools and um, technical assistance. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, are there any other you know pieces of legislation or programs that are in existence that also have, I mean, not as big of an, uh, of an impact, but like, you know, that are pretty substantial? Yeah, I mean, there are small programs here and there, whether it's through EPA um, or other departments that are getting at these goals, but the Farm Bill is really the, the main vehicle for securing this conservation funding. Um, one other piece of legislation that, that I would point to that, that does matter for the ability to provide financial and technical assistance is actually the annual appropriations process. Mm -hmm. Um, The appropriations process provides for what's called conservation technical assistance, or CTA. Um, This provides the the support for the actual implementation of these programs, the field staff, the folks out at those local USDA offices um, need funding to actually be able to support conservation planning, support farmers in implementing these conservation practices on their land. Um, so that, that funding, which we have to appropriate each year, also plays a really important role in making sure we're, we're getting conservation on the ground. Do you think, like, in your opinion and experience, do you think there is this recognition amongst um, legislators that food, like like addressing kind of food system concerns in the farm bill is like a major way to impact climate change? Or do you think that there is, it's sort of like an afterthought? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, the, the process of, the process over the past couple of years of trying to get um, changes and funding into the farm bill that get at these goals related to climate change was a was a challenging and complicated one. I think partially just because of the way that climate change has become politicized. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the climate change is not mentioned in the actual farm bill. We have language on weather variability. We have language on soil health. Like, um, like the term itself, the term itself, or just the like term it- the term itself. So there was a, there was a resistance or we were directed that like, yes, we hear you. Those are important goals. Um, But I think it's, you know, unfortunate that there's still very much this um, politicized nature of actually addressing climate change. Um, Even though, you know, when you talk to farmers, they say, yes, absolutely. Weather and extreme weather is having an impact on our production Um, And at the same time, you know, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle want to give farmers the tools to adapt and mitigate and improve soil health. Um, So I think, you know, unfortunately, addressing climate change itself is still very um, partisan in those Mm -hmm. efforts. But but the like recognition of the potential that the farm bill has to achieve these goals, even if we're not calling them climate change <laughs> even goals. Even you can't name it? So stupid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I think it depends on who you talk to, but like, yes, there is recognition that this is an enormous opportunity and the need, right. um, but there is a there are differing opinions depending on what you actually want to label that, that effort. Yeah. I mean, this is, we can like kind of go down a rabbit hole, but I just, you know, would be so curious as to why, like, 
why not, right? Why not call it climate change? Um, like, what is the harm in doing so? But maybe it has something to do with the fact that, like, the former head of the EPA is a climate change denier. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> could that? Could those two things be related? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah. <laughs> okay. So just for the point of, just for kind of like a point of clarification, is there a difference between, you know, in terms of terminology, between sustainability and conservation or are these terms like generally used interchangeably in your work and throughout mm -hmm. the farm bill yeah i mean i think they're they are used interchangeably at times from from our perspective they are two different things um i would say conservation kind of fits within the broader bucket of sustainability which is this idea and the need that we need to be producing a food in a in a way that is going to ensure we can we can meet the needs of the present generation but we want to do that while not compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs as well um, so sustainability is related to the stewardship of both natural as well as human resources um, I think conservation fits within that in that you know in order to ensure the sustainability of natural resources, conservation on that land is, is absolutely essential. Um, and it is interrelated, right? So yeah. these conservation efforts are related to, yes, protecting the natural resources for the present and future generations, but they're also about the profitability and viability and sustainability of the farmers themselves because it's related to soil health, it's related to productivity, profitability, um, these things are all interconnected, and I think conservation in and of itself is very much a piece of the overarching puzzle of how do we ensure that we have sustainable food systems. Okay, so thank you for that clarification. Um, okay, so let's 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 dig in. Um, <laughs> what are the core conservation and sustainability programs administered by the USDA that were up for kind of consideration and debate in the most recent farm bill? Yeah, I mean, so, and we're talking, you're thinking in terms of sustainability as a as a whole, including conservation, is that right? Um, yeah, let's just kind of like run through, like, I would say the, the big ones, and then we're going to dig into some of the um, more, you know, we'll go into detail about a few of them. Sure. Yeah, so I mean, the Farm Bill is comprehensive. It is a massive piece of legislation that touches every aspect of the food and farming system. Um, within that, the, the types of programs that, that we at NSAC were, were looking at and really see as an opportunity to ensure that we're protecting and advancing sustainability um, include things like conservation programs, include local and regional food systems programs, um, looking at research programs that are available to ensure we, we have the information we need to understand what are the types of practices that can advance sustainability. Um, it's related to crop insurance or those risk management tools. Um, beginning farmers also, you know, if we're thinking about sustainability of agriculture, we need to ensure that we can actually sustain the next generation of farmers. So programs that get at supporting beginning farmers as well as socially disadvantaged farmers, so folks that historically have, have been discriminated against or unable to access the, the tools and resources that USDA provides. Um, and then it also includes commodity programs. So those payments that are going for specific commodities, um, those are included within the Farm Bill as well. Um, additionally, we have programs that get at specifically organic agriculture, so ensuring that folks have 
the, the funding for standards that are related to organic production, um, certification cost share, um, and then also food safety. So farmers are very much tasked with ensuring that the food they produce is, is safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Farm Bill has, has programs and support that get at how do we ensure they, they are able to actually do that. Um, so, yeah, I realize that's a, that's a long list. That's a long list. It could, it could go on further, but I think, you know, the main takeaway is that there is not just the, the Farm Bill is very, very comprehensive, and there are multiple programs and policies that, that have major implications for um, the sustainability of our food systems. And so the one that you focused kind of most of, of your work on, um, my understanding, is the Conservation Stewardship Program. Is that, is that right? And then the the environmental quality incentive program. Yeah. So within the conservation title, um, there are a couple of different subsets of conservation programs. The the one that the subset of programs that we focus in on that's really important for for our members are working lands conservation programs. So this is a bucket of conservation programs that allow farmers and ranchers to keep that land in agricultural production while simultaneously managing and improving natural resources on that land in agricultural production. Um, And the two major working lands conservation programs are the Conservation Stewardship Program, or CSP, and the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, or Mm -hmm. EQIP. Okay. And what do these programs do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they are both complementary in that they're both working lands programs, but provide pretty unique purposes. Um, CSP provides comprehensive conservation assistance. This means that in order to enroll, farmers enroll their entire operation. They take on conservation activities across that operation to advance the stewardship goals. These are five-year contracts, so recognizing the importance of long-term conservation. They are addressing multiple resource concerns. And in order to enroll in CSP, there is an eligibility threshold. So the idea there is that participants are already at a certain level of stewardship to be eligible, um, and they agree to take on even more conservation over the course of their contract. And is that, um, is that, yeah. it's just, just to kind of jump in one, one quick sec, um, Yep. <laughs> is, are those like specific, are those like across the board initiatives? So like a one size fits all, everyone's doing the same thing or are they tailored to the individual farmers? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And they are, so a person will apply to enroll in CSP and as a part of that contract, they'll take on specific conservation activities or even suites of activities that are right for their operation and the resource concerns that they're working to address. Um, And there are hundreds of conservation activities within CSP. They're called enhancements Mm -hmm. that are available, um, you know, that that get at the multiple types of production, whether that is you have cropland or rangeland. Um, or pasture, there there is kind of something for everyone within the the overall suite of what is available. And what are some examples of some of these initiatives that a farmer will undertake? Yeah, so again, really depends on the type of farm. The operation yeah. itself. Um, but within CSP, the focus is very much on management type practices. So that might be changing your tillage system, so moving from a high tillage system to conservation tillage where you are um, disturbing the land less. You might also be complementing that by 
diversifying your crop rotations, incorporating cover crops or a resource conserving crop rotation. Um, additionally, you might be adding some some buffers to you know provide some um, a buffer between your land that you have in production and perhaps a nearby water source to prevent erosion and keep nutrients and and sediment out of that water. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, there could be things like grazing management. So if you have pasture and you want to ensure that you are rotating your um, your cattle in a way that is protecting and improving the health of that soil there are there are enhancements in in CSP for that as well okay all right and then so the second part of the um, the basically the second half uh, or related component to CSP you said was equip yeah yep so equip is the other major working lands conservation program. EQIP is different from CSP in that rather than enrolling your entire operation, you enroll for individual practices. Mm-hmm. Um, you can take on multiple practices, but, but the way that EQIP works is that you receive a cost share payment or a reimbursement for a certain percentage of that cost of that practice. Um, these practices, again, can be anything from management practices, vegetative practices, and also structural practices. So that's that's one of the differences between EQIP and CSP. EQIP does include those structural practices, um, including things like um, structures for concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs. Um, so not just solely a focus on management activities, and EQIP is focused on individual practices. Mm-hmm. Um, we see these programs, or these programs do provide unique purposes and goals, but there's definitely an opportunity to ensure better coordination between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, EQIP can be used for a farmer who maybe is not yet eligible for CSP because of where they are in their stewardship efforts, but they can take on a practice or two that will hopefully help them get to a place where they are then qualified and eligible to take on more comprehensive conservation on their land. Okay. And about how many farmers are enrolled in these two programs together, like ballpark? Yeah, that's a great question that I do not have the numbers right in front of me, but in the, let's say in the, in the thousands that enroll each year and over time, you know, Mm -hmm. over the history that, that this program has, has been available, um, many thousands of farmers who have, have participated and benefited from this program. Mm-hmm. Um, CSP is actually the biggest conservation program in the country with currently more than 70 million acres enrolled in that program. Wow. Um, so this is a massive footprint when we're talking about what is what is the opportunity impact, and impact of, of federal conservation assistance. And does it include small and mid-sized <laughs> farmers or is it mostly focused on agri- uh, like industrial production? Yeah, both programs, both CSP and EQIP, um, you know, there is no one-size-fits-all in terms of the, the type of producer that can enroll. Mm-hmm. Um, everything from smaller than an acre to hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres can, can participate, um, which, you know, I think speaks to, speaks to the importance of these conservation initiatives that they are not tailored just to large grain operations or small specialty crop operations. There is definitely a a diversity of of farmers participating in these programs. Okay. All right. So there was some 
And and sorry, did you mention like the t- technical assistance component for both of these? Yes, they both provide both financial and technical assistance. So the actual money reimbursement checks that are going to the farmer um, is a big piece of it. But the other thing that's really important is the actual field staff from USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service who are getting out there in the field um, to help them implement these specific practices. And that's the case for, for both programs. I think I can't remember who what um what amazing person I was talking to, but um, <laughs> but it, basically we were talking about I think it was maybe in one of the the like when we um, when I was discussing the the fourth national climate change assessment report, um, but but uh, so. One of the big gaps, it seems like a lot of these farmers maybe like want to make these changes for a lot of the reasons you laid out previously, but they like their only form of technical assistance is like are like representatives from the like um, fertilizer companies. Like this is a huge gap that people don't realize that, you know, farmers basically like don't have any help or like from like even like a resource perspective to like even kind of like knowledge and best practices from the field in terms of how to implement new things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we definitely hear from both farmers and also from NRCS field staff is that like the major limitation is the actual boots on the ground. Um, The financial assistance is good, but it's kind of useless if the local office doesn't have enough staff and capacity to get there out in the field and help them implement it. Um, And yes, absolutely. Like there are definitely private providers of that technical assistance. And (laughs) maybe for some folks that is a good fit, but it should, it is absolutely not a replacement for federal assistance, um, you know, coming from an unbiased. Yeah. I was going to say it's pretty biased. Um, (laughs) Seems pretty biased. And that's been one of the things actually that the the administration continues to propose in its uh, annual budget, which we expect to see out this year, probably sometime next month. Um, But the past two years, one of the things they've proposed to slash, which Congress has said, no, we will not slash that. Um, is conservation technical assistance. The the argument that they use is like, hey, this is a thing that we should really transition to the private sector providing. Um, our response to that is like, sure, the private sector does have a role to play when it comes to technical assistance, but that absolutely cannot be and should not be a substitute for federal assistance and um, technical assistance that is coming from USDA. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's good that over the past two years, Congress appropriators have, have rejected that proposal and provided robust funding. Um, but again, what we hear from the folks on the ground is like, we, we need even more. This is a serious limitation when it comes to our ability to get conservation programs and practices implemented. Um, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's just, it's just so transparent. Like, what the administration is pushing for, but whatever. Um, okay. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, uh, there was some controversy, right? This, 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 um, these two kind of programs and this specific like title, there's a lot of back and forth before you guys align. So what was, what were some of the sticking points? Yeah. You know, unfortunately the conservation title was one of the most controversial titles within this farm mill debate. 
um, which is just kind of makes no sense. Um, working lands programs are voluntary conservation assistance benefiting farmers. This should not be something that is becoming highly partisan um, and really difficult to negotiate. But unfortunately, that was the direction that negotiations over the conservation title took. Um, it started with the House proposal. So the House released their draft bill. They proposed to eliminate the conservation stewardship program entirely. Um, they kind of cr created or proposed to create this substitute um, incentive program within EQIP. Uh, but in reality, that did not that did not replace the, the unique goals of, of CSP. Um, the Senate took a very different approach. They kept both programs and made some really important policy improvements that, that NSAC played a, lead, a leading role in advocating for. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, in the final bill, we did see the Senate structural approach to the conservation title prevail, um, meaning that we kept both EQIP and CSP as separate programs. We also saw those really important policy improvements to the programs included. Um, we do see long-term funding cuts to working lands programs and to CSP specifically. Um, and that's something, you know, over the next couple of years, and especially as we look towards the next farm bill, um, we will need to, to work to reverse to ensure that we are not moving in a direction of kind of cutting back on the, the funding that is very much needed. Yeah, I also just don't, I can't wrap my head around why in this day and age, you know, there would still be a move to cut this kind of funding. Of like all of the things, why is this the initiative people are like, no, no, we definitely can't have conservation efforts. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't yeah, understand. No, absolutely. And help me understand know, this. <laughs> and I think for the conservation title overall, where we landed was that we did see there was no, there were no cuts to the overall conservation title. Um, that is at least an improvement on what we saw happen in the last farm bill, which was a $6 billion cut when you include sequestration. Mm -hmm. um, so while we didn't see any total cuts to the title, um, we also didn't see any increases to the title. So what that means, it was in order to increase some programs, programs like the easement program, as well as partnership programs, which are, you know, important programs in and of themselves. Um, but because there was no net increase, the negotiators were forced to, to have that come at the expense of other conservation programs, um, specifically CSP kind of really took a, a big hit. Um, so I think it very much speaks to the, the need for, you know, not only do we need to be holding the line when it comes to no cuts, but like the, the need for increased funding is, is very real. Um, we know that is the case in terms of demand on the ground for farmers who want to enroll in these programs and cannot. Um, and we also know it is very, very real when it comes to the types of challenges related to, to climate and water that, that we're up against. Um, like the, the demonstration of the need for additional funding is, is very much there. Okay, so switching gears for a minute, um, two of the major tenants uh, that kind of came out of the World Resource 
Resources Institute's report, Creating a Sustainable Food Future. Um, uh, you know, and the rest of the title is a menu to of solutions to feed nearly 10 million people by 2050. So this report um, called for two of like five main things, and and one of them was. Um, to increase food production without expanding agricultural land. I'm wondering, in your opinion, like to what extent the Farm Bill and the conservation efforts in the Farm Bill kind of addressed this concern, if at all, this idea that we need to increase production sustainably and without, um, you know, using more land, basically. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think that you know, the the farm bill did increase the total number of acres that, that are available for the conservation reserve program. So that is the program that allows us to allows farmers to take land, highly sensitive land out of production mm-hmm. um, and and protect it. So I think that's a that's a step in the in the right direction. Um, I think in terms of the working lands programs themselves, they, they are very much focused on, you know, how can we take this land that we have in agricultural production and make it more profitable and make it more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very much not about expanding the, the number of acres that are in production, but rather how can we use these acres most most effectively, most sustainably, both both for the, the bottom line for the farmers and also for um, the, the resources that are impacted. What about, I mean, there is a section of the farm bill um, that talks, that addresses like research and plant breeding. I'm wondering if there was any component of this. And I know this is a little bit, um, a little bit tangential from kind of the main like conservation efforts, but I'm just wondering if like any part of that um, aspect of the farm bill like addressed increased increasing productivity uh, in terms of like actual output of food in a, in a sustainable way. Yeah. So the, the research title definitely includes several, several initiatives that are related to ensuring that we can sustainably produce, um, produce the food that, that is needed. Um, The areas that we were focused on in terms of the research title are especially related to to public plant breeding. Mm -hmm. So ensuring that farmers have access to the the types of seeds that are um, adapted and and right for their their region and also that they have have access to those cultivars cultivars and and public plant breeding that is necessary to, to get those additional seeds. Um, so I think research very much plays a role in ensuring access to the information that is needed. Um, you know, we are definitely not going to advance sustainability without new discoveries and developments and plant breeding efforts. This is not a like, okay, we're done. We have all the information we need. Um, so I think that there were definitely some good um, steps forward in terms of public plant breeding within the farm bill. Um, additionally, within the, the research title, there were some good steps forward related to organic agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, the Organic Research Extension Initiative, or OREI, received increased funding and received permanent funding for the first time ever. So this is a program that provides targeted support for organic research. So understanding what are the types of practices um, and systems that really work for organic production. Uh, This was a historic securing of that funding, which 
Otherwise, we would have to fight each farm bill to get new funding. But this kind of signs it in permanently to say we now have this funding. It is permanent, recognizing the importance of organic research as as the farm bill moves forward. Okay, so so a few other really big wins, it sounds like. Yeah. All right. So I've got the last, we're going to take a quick commercial break in just one minute. But um, the other question I had that, you know, that came out of the, this WRI's report, um, one of the things I called for was reducing greenhouse gas emissions um, from production. And I'm wondering like what specifically, if you can kind of point to um, certain programs that are, you know, that, that, target doing just that? And if it's like mostly around kind of livestock? Yeah, I think that I think there are a lot of different opportunities to to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I think a lot actually has to do with nutrient management. Mm -hmm. Um, That is very much a, a source, both in terms of the inputs as well as the production of those inputs. Um, so many of the practices that are available through the conservation title get at that. How can we how can we have reduced inputs and still increased profitability? Um, there are also energy programs, renewable energy programs, that are getting at that goal as well of reducing emissions. Um, and then I think the the third bucket is actually how can agriculture create or contribute to carbon sequestration and pulling that carbon out of the air and, and bringing it into the soil. And again, you know, those types of practices that, that we talked about before are very much key to, to that process. Doing that. Okay, great. All right. So yeah, we're going to take a really quick commercial break here, word from our sponsors. Um, but when we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the other major programs in the 2008 Farm Bill and what was finally approved. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Pico Oysters, turning water into brine on Long Island's North Fork. Grown out of Little Peconic Bay, Pico Oysters are the only oysters based out of New Suffolk, New York. Owner, farmer, and avid fisherman Peter Stein founded Pico Oysters in 2016 after leaving a corporate job in business consulting and educational software. It's his love and passion for the area and his farm that makes eating and learning about Picos so enjoyable. Taste one and see for yourself. Learn more at PicoOysters.com. That's P-E-E-K-O Oysters.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today um, I'm speaking with Alyssa Charney, Senior Policy Specialist at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, Coalition, about where we landed with several conservation programs um, in the Farm Bill that were up for consideration. Okay, so... Um, I want to talk a little bit more about other program, other programs in the Farm Bill um, that have, you know, touch on conservation efforts, um, like we started to before break. And one of the um, one of those is the local ag market program. Can you tell us a little bit about this initiative and how, you know, and like what basically what the interventions of the program do? Yeah, so the the Local Agriculture Market Program, or LAMP, um, as it is now referred to, was was newly created. (laughs) So many acronyms, by the way. So many acronyms. In his alphabet (laughs) soup. Um, And, you know, this farm bill only increases it further. So that is just just how it works. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But LAMP was newly created in the farm bill 
consolidating a couple of different programs related to local and regional food systems. Um, the two main programs being the Farmers Market and Local Food Promotion Program and the Value Added Producer Grants Program. Um, these are programs, so for the Farmers Market and Local Food Promotion Program, this is a grants program that really is directed at um, direct to consumer marketing strategies as well as local and regional food business enterprises. Um, so how can we ensure that we're supporting that part of the food system, um, really supporting that intermediary between producers and consumers? This is related to aggregating, storing, processing, distributing these local products. Um, and then the other program is the Value Added Producer Grants Program. This is providing grants to individual independent producers or groups of producers to add value to their product. Um, this could be something like creating a value-added product such as jam, such as ice cream, kind of taking something that they take their product that they are producing and they go in a way that is going to allow them to, to sell it for more and diversify the market. Um, so the reason behind creating this program the, the, to consolidate these programs and, and add a new acronym <laughs> um, was to, to secure, again, what we refer to as permanent mandatory funding. Um, this is key because these smaller programs that when they're by themselves, they do not have enough funding to be built into the baseline. That means that if the farm bill expires, as it did this uh -huh. past year, they're left stranded, they have no money, they cannot go on. Um, and Congress has to find new money for these programs each year. So by securing permanent funding, this means that they are, they are built into the baseline. So next time when we go to write the next farm bill, A, if the farm bill expires, they, are, they still have funding. They can still continue to operate. Um, and B, we, we don't, it's not a fight to find that funding as it has been in the past. Um, so this was really a recognition of the important role of these local and regional food systems, of these different diversified markets um, in supporting farmers and ranchers and communities across the country. So one of the things that I, you know, would love to get your kind of like take on is I think that mm -hmm. there's this general idea and understanding that um, eating local food, supporting regional food systems um, is like, you know, mm -hmm. helps address sustainability gaps. But I don't know, you know, I think these are like, you know, people are just like, I like to eat local for the environment. But like, what is that? A, I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> always like such a direct link. Right. And then and I want to know, like, can you just kind of talk about why? Why? What is the argument for like specifically um, eating locally and how that affects, you know, reduces our environmental footprint? Yeah. I mean, so of course you can refer to and reference and look at data related to the cost of transporting food across the, the country or the globe when it comes to emissions. Um, so that's obviously a, a part of the conversation. I think another important piece of for a lot of folks, the interest in tapping into these local markets is to be able to understand, okay, what is the actual operation and the practices that went into the production of this food? Mm -hmm. um, so by, by having a clear understanding of um, where that food is coming from, you can get closer or you can have a greater understanding of the information related to what types of conservation practices are actually happening on that land. How are they managing their livestock? What are the implications for water quality and my neighboring watershed? 
Um, so by kind of breaking down or eliminating some of those steps that are that are in our food system that result in us knowing less about those sources, um, these local and regional food markets allow for a clear understanding of like what are the actual practices that went into this production, um, identifying those farmers who are kind of going above and beyond in their efforts to be good stewards of the land and being able to, to support those types of practices by, by where the consumer is investing their money. Okay. So, so definitely reduce kind of transportation emissions. Although I ask because sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not as clear, like if, a, if your food came by barge or whatever, yeah. you know, it's not as, it's not a big a footprint as if like a farmer was driving a truck yeah. that, you know, whatever. Had, yeah. Like, I don't think it's, it's definitely not that clear cut of a like less miles equals this right. many less tons of emissions. Yeah. Um, but you know, if it, if, it, if it was that clear, that'd be great. But, but yes, of course there is some sort of correlation between <laughs> transportation related emissions and getting food from point A to point B. And then the bigger, it seems like of equal importance, if not more, is the mm -hmm. idea like having consumers like know your farmer, be able to ask questions, make choiceful decisions, just connecting people, um, you know, providing a closer connection to where their food comes from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well then, and then any other kind of, um, Oh, you know what? Also, one other thing. Like, there was also a focus on small and medium-sized farmers. Like that within this, obviously, this kind of section specifically. And I'm wondering, like, what percentage of farmers in the U.S. are considered to be small, and how big of a like con how big of a um, contribution do they make to um, unsustainable practices or like, or actually another way to say this is, is like, is focusing on them. Will that really move the needle? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that, I don't think that our, we are going to move the needle by focusing in on any one type of size alone. I think that's, that's part of the need is how can we ensure that the diversity of types of operations that we have out there, um, have the tools they need to, to address conservation and sustainability goals. Um, and I think oftentimes it is the smaller and medium-sized producers who, who don't have access to the same types of tools related to infrastructure and markets that some of these larger operations do just by their very nature. Mm -hmm. um, so I think part of the goal and especially part of these these programs is to ensure that we can we can level the playing field to allow them being uh, being an important part of the food system with all of these different sized operations to to have access to the same types of tools whether we're talking about local and regional food systems and markets whether we're talking about conservation programs whether we're talking about crop insurance um, our our goal and where we're coming from at, at NSAC is to say, you know, we want to make sure that these types of producers have the same access to the, the tools that are very necessary to, to survive. Um, one thing I've been wondering about, I've wanted to ask you about is... Um you know, I mentioned like Scott Pruitt, former head of the EPA, and recently um, the nominee for Trump's likely like nominee for to lead the Department of the Interior, who is a former energy lobbyist and, you know, is like really expected to boost domestic fuel production and open up 
public lands to drilling and mining and all of the horrible things. So, I mean, I, sorry, I digress, but basically I find his um, appointees <laughs> to be like so offensive. But, um, but one thing I don't, I don't really hear a lot about Sonny Purdue. So I'm wondering like what you um, basically kind of, what the the view is of his role at the USDA in addressing climate change or being a barrier to addressing climate change? Like, has he yeah. been as detrimental? Right. Um, yeah, you know, he's definitely stayed out of the spotlight compared to, yeah. <laughs> compared to some of the other um, folks in, in the cabinet. I think that um, the money of the there was a lot of work that was done under the previous administration related to um carbon sequestration and really having a strong correlation between the practices and the the known impacts and need related to climate change um we have not seen those initiatives like killed we're not eliminating practices that we know are beneficial for climate change mitigation and adaptation but we definitely have not seen the same spotlight and lifting up of those practices as we did under the previous administration. Um, I think, you know, some of the things that we, we are most recently concerned about related to the administration's proposals is the proposed relocation of the two main research institutions, um, ERS and NIFA. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a proposal from the administration to, to relocate those agencies out of D.C. Um, and also to realign ERS. Which is the with, ec- Economic Research Service? service. Yeah. yeah. Okay. With the Secretary's office. So right now, ERS really has the opportunity to provide very unbiased information um, and that is because they, they operate outside of kind of the secretary's office. There is no, ERS is not politicized. Mm-hmm. Um, our concern in moving ERS is, you know, what, what are the implications to ensure that we can provide or ERS can provide unbiased information? Um, and then by proposing to move both ERS and NIFA out of D.C., there are major major implications and major concerns for staffing capacity. Um, all of that expertise is not going to leave D.C. where people have, have lives and are established doing this work. Um, so I think there are definitely concerns related to that proposal and what does it mean for the integrity of the, the really important scientific research that, that USDA is doing. Um, all right, so we we've have to wrap up in just one minute, but we have um, um, talked obviously about so all of these initiatives are happening at the federal level. Um, but I think now is an interesting time because more so than ever in recent history for people who care about conservation and sustainability initiatives. Um, now we're kind of, there's like been an increased focus on what can the states do because there has not been a lot of like progressive movement coming out of the federal government on these programs. So mm-hmm. are there like, have you seen increased like work at the state level? Um, are there kind of interesting things happening or does this type of work really need to happen like nationally to make a big effort or a big impact? Yeah, I think, you know, it's definitely really exciting to see states taking initiative in developing soil health programs and a lot of good work related to climate change. 
Um, and I do very much hear and recognize that sentiment of kind of we're not going to get anywhere at the federal level. We may as well kind of give up and move to the to the state. Well, level. not not give up, but really f- <laughs> like p- sh- focus more. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and I think I mean from our perspective, so NSAC fully focuses on federal policy. Um, that is where we we do our work, and we are we're not giving up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we definitely know that there have been challenges and um, you know things that that we would like to. See happen better, um, but we we will continue to push for these types of programs and policies and reforms at the federal level. Um, the farm bill is passed and signed into law, but we are not done with implementation. There's a lot of work ahead of us in terms of ensuring these programs and policies are actually implemented as intended, as to achieve goals related to soil health and climate change. Um, and so, you know, we will continue to, to push on those goals with, with Congress and with USDA. But, but I do think there's absolutely a need and an opportunity for complementary um, state-level initiatives to be moving forward. Oftentimes yeah. we see that those state-level initiatives can be really great models um, for yeah. new proposals that we can also move forward at the federal level. So, you know, I think the interplay and interaction between the two levels is is super important, but that, you know, we, we should very much continue to, to push for federal policy, um, both in terms of ensuring we're protecting um, the, the gains that we have made and, and also making important advances related to, to soil health and climate change moving forward. Okay, so so you have your work cut out for you, it's, it <laughs> sounds like. And in terms of next steps, you guys are going to be focusing on, you said, the implementation. When, when will this likely um, start to happen? Yeah, so USDA had its first implementation meeting, I believe, on December 21st. Um, that was then later that night at midnight, the government shut down for 35 days. Um, so they, they were ready to go, but, um, the government shut down, obviously put a slow things down there, but they are, they're open again and, and moving forward with implementation. Um, there will be, you know, many different ways that this moves forward, including changes that they can make automatically because they are pretty straightforward, um, and then there will be other programs and policies that they have to issue rules for. Um, so what are the details of how these changes actually get rolled out? That will then be the opportunity for the public to provide comments and feedback on what these changes should look like. Uh, we will be doing that for, for all steps of the process before the rules are released, when the rules are released. Um, and we'll also be working with Congress to ensure that they are providing oversight. They, they did pass the law. But they, they're also not done. They now are tasked with ensuring that their intentions are actually followed through on. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking to see how these, how these wins are, are rolled out. Um, and then implementation also matters in terms of what's actually happening out in the field across the country. So on, on that part, we'll be working with our member groups to ensure that kind of there is, there is outreach of these new exciting provisions um, that they are they are being rolled out in a way that is accessible and beneficial um, with the intent provided. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and walking us through all of these changes and for the really important work you do. Yeah, thanks so much for, for the opportunity. It was great to chat. Okay, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as uh, thanks to our engineer, Jeet Paul. Welcome back after the break, Jeet. 
Um, show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening. <laughs>